Hello, I'm David Osman. On behalf of the Independent Research Forum, welcome to this IRF podcast. With me again today from America is Barry Knapp of Ironside's Macroeconomics. The subject for this podcast, the US economic outlook, a profitable non-consensus view. The Independent Research Forum promotes an extensive range of high quality and differentiated independent research and alternative data providers from around the world, both macro and micro. Many are global, some are country specific, some are sector specific, some are stock pickers, all are investment related. The world economy has been rocked by a global pandemic, supply chain disruptions, an energy crisis, and the ramifications of Russia's atrocious war on Ukraine. As a result, forecasts for economic growth and inflation are even less certain than normal. In these circumstances, the US economy and financial markets have some obvious attractions. To discuss the prospects for the USA, I'm very pleased that we are once again joined today by Barry Knapp, the managing partner and head of macro and public policy strategy at Ironside Macroeconomics. Barry has had a long and distinguished career that has evolved from equity derivatives to principal trading, then equity strategy research, unconstrained fixed income investment, and now macroeconomic and policy strategy. Previously, Barry was a senior managing director and head of macro and public policy strategy at Guggenheim Securities. Before that, he was MD and head of thematic strategies for BlackRock Fundamental Fixed Income. He is also a former MD and chief US equity strategist at Barclays Capital and a former MD in principal trading and equity derivatives at Lehman Brothers. Ironside's Macroeconomics was founded by Barry in 2019 to provide macroeconomic and public policy strategy for institutional and sophisticated individual investors, wealth advisors, family offices, banks, and non-financial corporations. Ironside's Macroeconomics identifies and analyzes sustainable trends, potential risks, and assets that they believe are either undervalued or overvalued given their economic and policy outlook. Barry, welcome back. Let's begin with a brief introduction to the service that is provided by Ironside's Macroeconomics. Thank you, David. Um, David, that was a very thorough description of my background and uh, what you can expect. The brand name of the product is It's Never Different This Time, which is driven by my love for history and thinking about various historical analogs and what they, they mean. Um, I've tried to make it as, as easy as I can to uh, to deal with Ironside's macro. We've got um, a core subscription service that entitles you to the um, weekly research reports that are generally 2,500 words or so stocked with tables and graphs, specific recommendations uh, on sectors and asset allocation and some more esoteric ideas when we uh, when we come up with those, um, I also have a relationship with a New York-based broker-dealer, uh, derivatives-based broker-dealer, a former colleague of mine run by a guy named Dean Kernett called Macro Risk Advisors. For those customers that still 
deal the old fashioned way and like to pay for research with commission dollars. Um, and then I'm also in the voting system for some of the larger money managers that um, uh, pay that way as well. Uh, in addition to separately negotiated arrangements for clients where I provide an institutional level of service. So um, um, pretty much any way you like to pay for research, I'm, I'm willing to, uh, uh, to facilitate that. Now, Barry, why do you expect U.S. economic growth and corporate profits to be above consensus this year? When the pandemic struck, I was uh, adamant from the get-go that there were two dynamics that were the antithesis of the global financial crisis. The first was that it was an inflationary rather than a deflationary shock. Those forces were already in place. I'd say at this point, um, that looks to have been uh, uh, borne out as, uh, as indeed accurate. But I also believed that the pandemic was a positive productivity shock rather than a negative productivity shock. Productivity ran at seven-tenths of 1% after the cyclical uh, downturn and then immediate rebound in the aftermath of the global financial crisis. But it ran at seven-tenths of 1% from 2011 through 2017. We had a labor market that was moribund, far from dynamic. Uh, We had um, a very weak capital spending uh, cycle the second weakest since World War II. The only one being weaker was the late 50s, which was a very short business cycle. This was, of course, the longest in history. And uh, while we did have uh, some technology adoption towards the end of the cycle in the services sector in particular, um, we had this moribund growth rate in productivity. Remember, the post-World War II average for U.S. productivity growth is above 2%. Roundabout though 2018, we started to see an increase in productivity through the services sector. Trend productivity jumped to 2%. So when the pandemic struck, uh, what it did was it spurred technology innovation adoption and delivery of consumer goods and services, a process that was already underway. Uh, but it also set the stage for capital deepening and productivity or technology innovation adoption across additional uh, sectors of the U.S. economy, healthcare being perhaps the most interesting one over time, because that's been the biggest drag on productivity in the U.S. Consequently, if you think about the outlook for 2022 and beyond in the U.S., it's likely that we will have all three inputs to productivity firing together, meaning we'll have capital deepening. We should likely have a very strong capital spending cycle uh, this go around with deglobalization as being one of the drivers to that. Um, so capital deepening for sure. We'll also get um, increased labor productivity, and that comes from labor market dynamism or labor market turnover. There's two things driving wages higher right now. One is uh, a lack of slack, if you will, and that'll be on offer in Friday's payroll report, no doubt. And so the scarcity is driving up low income wages relative to high income wages. But we also have labor markets turning over. After the global financial crisis, people were trapped in their homes with negative equity. They couldn't go chase jobs. Now people can work from home and businesses are taking advantage of that. And people are going out and seeking jobs that they really want over time that carries with it increased productivity. There's some good 
research on this. Labor market fluidity and economic performance by Stephen Davis is one paper I would point people to on that. And then the final piece is technology adoption in delivery of various services. We think we'll, uh, while we'd already seen that in the consumer sector, as I said, we'll see it in healthcare, we'll see it in the industrial sector, increased automation, uh, and we'll see it in, in the financial sector, the whole uh, ascendancy of blockchain technology, for example, and payment systems. Uh, all those things are going to drive productivity. So that is the key to not having increased wages, increased input costs, cost of goods sold, impairing margins. If I'm right about productivity, then uh, that will be more than an offset, at least for the foreseeable future. Margins will hold up and growth will hold up. Now, uh, when it comes to monetary policy, um, with stronger growth, how uh, do you expect the Fed to react? Is it going to still be comfortable to be behind the curve in the battle against inflation? Uh, not initially, no. Um, so I, I do think that the Fed took a couple of important steps at the March FOMC meeting towards regaining credibility, but they're going to need more than credibility to, to deal with this problem. The Fed's perspective on all this is that the way the inflation process works is Wage growth, less productivity is going to be equal to consumer prices. I have lots of problems with that model in as much as the, the true deflationary force for the last 30 years had little to do with uh, the U.S. labor market, everything to do with the Chinese labor market, right? It was the integration of China into global supply chains that put downward pressure on goods prices, services sector prices in the U.S., which are domestically determined, have been running at 3% for decades. It's goods prices that provided that downward pressure. But the Fed's reaction function is going to flow from the U.S. labor market. So while I think there's two drivers of higher wages right now, this increased dynamism or turnover that I referred to that ultimately carries with it a productivity dividend, the Fed's focus is going to be on a lack of slack uh, and the labor market being through Nehru or their estimate of full employment. And so that will likely be the driver of them push, pushing policy forward in, in the near term, which probably implies when we get if we have a strong report on Friday that when uh, we get to the May, uh, the May meeting, they will want to probably increase the pace of rate hikes from 25 basis points to 50 basis points, but more importantly, start the balance sheet contraction. And that is a uh, that's a very key underappreciated issue that um, uh, we can definitely talk about further if you'd like. Oh, and what are the implications as if for the yield curve in the government bond market? Yeah, the um, uh, my Twitter feed and financial news has just been um, full of people um, opining about the twos, tens nominal yield curve, and um, it's very brief inversion yesterday. Uh, there's, a, there's a number of problems with that. First of all, the two stands curve, uh, two-year notes haven't even been around that long. So we really only have four uh, examples of where the two stands nominal curve inverted and uh, recessions resulted. The last one was the pandemic. So we can't exactly assume causation in that case. The prior three occasions, um, you know, 19, uh, 1989, um, 2000 and then 2006, uh, undoubtedly the inversion of the yield curve did play some role into tipping what were then uh, asset bubbles 
into full-fledged bubbles bursting. The savings and loan crisis in 1990, uh, although, again, there was an exogenous shock. In that case, it was the Iraq-Kuwait War. Uh, 2006, uh, or excuse me, 2000, we had a uh, technology investment bubble burst, and 2006 was the beginning of the housing crisis. We don't have any such imbalance right now. We do have excessive debt in the U.S., but it's all in the government sector, not in the private sector. So um, if you think about the transmission mechanism for that causing a recession, in 1968, it was JFK raising taxes. Uh, Biden is unlikely to be able to raise taxes. He is likely to receive an absolute drubbing in November. And so the, the government is unlikely to push us into a recession as a consequence of that. I would also point people to uh, other curves that have a longer and more robust uh, history and, and more academic support for them being better recession indicators, the three-month, 10-year uh, note um, curve, and the um, the front-end forward curve. That's the three-month rate, 18 months forward, less the current spot three-month rate. Those curves are steepening, not flattening, uh, and are probably better indicators than twos, tens, nominal um, and I would include the structure of the banking system. The banking system hasn't added fixed rate assets uh, since the global financial crisis in any significant size, in part because of regulatory policy. The banking system is more levered to increases in short-term rates. It's probably why the street's rooting that on so strongly. So uh, there's just not the transmission mechanism. And I, I, don't, uh, I don't believe that the twos, tens, flattening of the curve is uh, is a real risk or sending much of a, a reasonable signal. A final point on that, too, would be that um, um, Fed, never before in those four instances I mentioned, did the Fed hold a third of the mortgage market and a third of the uh, treasury market. That's exerting downward pressure on the 10-year part of the curve, which brings me to balance sheet contraction and the Fed's um, plans on that, which um, I, I think that, the, again, the street's underappreciated. When the Fed starts winding down that mortgage portfolio, I would expect to see the yield curve start steepening out. Now, should investors be overweight the U.S. equity market? Um, yes, they should, um, in part because as we um, I've got a, a sort of a number of, of reasons why I remain overweight U.S. equities, but one of the the probably most pertinent one in the current environment, and by current environment, I mean the Russian invasion being the third global supply chain shock in, fourth, in four years. The first one was the Trump trade war. The second one was the pandemic. And third is the Russian invasion. Uh, I've been arguing for deglobalization since the middle of the last cycle. There was some very good research done early on in, say, 2012, there was a report by the Boston Consulting Group called The Tipping Point that argued manufacturing in China to sell products all over the world no longer made economic sense. There had been a convergence of economic forces, unit productivity-adjusted uh, unit labor costs, um, increased supply chain risks, exchange rate risks, increased transportation costs, and supply chain risks all meant that Trying to manufacture products to ship all over the world from China didn't make economic, much economic sense. But of course, we needed some catalysts for businesses to start restructuring global supply chains. Within that context, we've got um, 
uh, economies ranked two, three, and four in the world that are very dependent upon exports for growth. Uh, The US and the UK are notable exemptions. UK is probably number five in in terms of total output. But within that context, we are going to go through deglobalization, de-risking of supply chains, and um, uh, the so-called mercantilists, we think, are going to struggle mightily. Now, there are plenty of places in the world that uh, that could benefit from a bit of a, a deglobalization trend and and um, uh, rebuilding their own capital stock. But the U.S. stands out in that respect and uh, probably has the least to lose in an era where we're going to restructure global supply chains. So that's a that's a big plus for the U.S. It's likely that there will be a capital boom here a real integration of technology and delivery of goods and services that um, the rest of the world will take some time to come around to. I would look for Germany to be the first mover between uh, China, Japan, and Germany as the three biggest mercantilist export-dependent economies. Uh, What happened in Russia was was a political um, tsunami for Germany, and uh, uh, they'll probably be the first one to start changing their economic system to move away from that export dependency. So which are your most and least preferred sectors in the U.S. stock market? Part of the process I've been describing about this technology diffusion into uh, economic sectors um, in a lot of ways is is parallel to what happened in the 90s and and then into the 2000s. In the 90s, we had a huge technology boom, um, areas like uh, fiber optics capacity. By the time the bust happened, we had something like 25% 25% capacity utilization in fiber optics cable, um, Global Crossing and WorldCom went bust. But that all that capacity uh, set the stage for the streaming industry to, to develop. And so the benefits of the technology boom moved from the producers of that technology to the consumers of that technology. Over the last decade, we had a boom in cloud investment and, in essence, outsourced storage, those benefits, we think, are going to start to accrue to the consumers of that technology. So the healthcare sector, which has been woefully under, uh, they've woefully underinvested in technology for decades. Um, the industrial sector is going to be become much more uh, dependent upon the Internet of Things. The financial sector is really going to invest heavily there. It's already happened in consumer goods and services. So those benefits of the investment in the cloud are going to start to accrue to the consumers. And so for me, that means uh, technology is likely to be more of a market performer um, through this business cycle, as opposed to a massive outperformer was it, as it was last cycle. Again, a, a less acute version of what happened in the 90s and 2000s. So that's technology and technology related. That would include, include communication services and the um, consumer discretionary sector. And then the beneficiaries of that are likely to be industrials and financials and um, uh, materials. And the energy sector is a little uh, different story, but we're, we're uh, very positive on the industrial sector. I mean, excuse me, the, uh, the energy sector. Uh, exploration companies are generating ROEs of 15%. That's double their long-term mean. Uh, they have much greater elasticity of supply as a consequence of shale. That means more stable return on invested capital. That should receive a higher multiple over time. Those stocks are still cheap. Uh, so I definitely are leaning towards 
a reflationary regime in those reflationary sectors. And the defensive sectors, which generally outperform during a Fed policy-related correction, which we just went through, are, are quite rich, actually. Utilities are incredibly rich. The staple sector are rich. And these sectors are unlikely to, uh, to do particularly well in a reflationary regime uh, characterized by uh, negative returns for bond investors. And how about real estate? Yeah, that's a um, that's a that's a tough one. Um, I've been advocating in the case of residential real estate. I've been advocating for the Fed to be more active in their management of their mortgage-backed securities portfolio. That is the most efficacious or surgical tool that they have. They created an absolute real estate bubble, though it doesn't have the debt associated with it that it had in 05 and 06. One measure I use to um, uh, determine or you know, estimate the effect of monetary policy or macro factors on real estate is to look at the correlation of the 20 cities in the CoreLogic house price index. And it went to 0.97%. It never got above 0.7% back in the uh, bubble of 05 or 06, which is, is, is a way to determine whether macro factors are pushing house prices all up together. And so the Fed has this massive portfolio of mortgage-backed securities. They ought to be aggressively unwinding it to widen out mortgage spreads, and they are widening out, which will dissuade financial buyers like Blackstone, BlackRock, who've um, built up these huge war chests and bought residential real estate and driven prices up and crowded out millennial buyers. Now, when you look at core household formation, it looks like it did in the 70s. Millennials took a little bit longer, but are now forming households at similar rates as the baby boomers did back in the 70s. And the millennial uh, age cohort is actually bigger than the boomers. So there's underlying demand for housing, but this is the place where the Fed really needs to engineer, try and focus on engineering some sort of a landing, uh, not a crash landing. It's unlikely they'll have a crash landing because of that underlying demand from millennials and because there's not leverage associated with it this go around. But, um, but that is a, that's a very tricky area. As far as commercial real estate goes, uh, we had fantastic returns to REITs last year. And while some of the sectors, uh, subsectors within REITs, um, you know, uh, communication related building cell towers and the like are a whole separate story, uh, commercial real estate, um, you know, looks pretty pricey. I mean, the capital, the cap rates on that stuff are, is definitely unattractive. Those are bond surrogates. And I think it's likely like the 1960s, where we have a period where the correlation between stock and bond returns flips, bond returns are negative and stock returns remain reasonably robust. This is what happened from 1960 to 67, 68 or so. And it's probably going to be the case again this uh, this business cycle as well. And what are the implications of all this for the U.S. dollar exchange rate? Yeah, it's a um, there's a whole series of um, of sub stories within currency markets. Uh, we've got commodity currencies that are really robust. I took a look at emerging market equities in my my latest note and wound up saying that um, South America looked pretty attractive from evaluation and a um, fundamental perspective because of the commodity sensitivity. 
Asia looked unattractive because of their dependency on exports. Europe obviously has got uh, some pretty serious geopolitical overhang to it. And the currency stories are, are similar. Um, the, uh, the Japanese seem absolutely determined to keep this ridiculous policy that's been a slow bleed on the Japanese economy, banking system and credit creation going. Um, you know, tighter U- U.S. monetary policy overall, you would think, would would uh, push the dollar higher. I have, though, my concerns that um, both the ECB and BOJ policies are ultimately counterproductive. They create liquidity traps. They create very weak product, uh, profitability in their banking system that impairs credit um, credit creation. And um, uh, ultimately, those weaker currencies, you know, a weaker euro, a weaker yen are, are problematic. I suspect that the... Um, the RMB is going to start to weaken as uh, export growth slows through the course of this year. That will create something of a dilemma for the Chinese in as much as they could very well find themselves with another outflow crisis, much like 2015, given all of the crackdowns on uh, um, tech executives there and all the other real estate related issues. So uh, there's a there's a lot of different uh, there's a lot of different cross currents going on with uh, with currencies, and and in listen, in the long run, the Fed is going to find itself having a very difficult time getting back to a um, normalized normalized monetary policy. I've drawn the analogy to the 1960s. I wrote an essay about this. It's on on my website outside the paywall. People can go see it at ironsidesmacro.substack.com. And uh, I do think that um, like the 60s, when the U.S. got had a lot less interest in being the world's reserve currency, I think that's true today, which um, is kind of a lead into a whole Bitcoin uh, crypto story. But uh, that's probably a story for another day. Barry, I will look forward to reading that piece that you've written about the 1960s. I was at school then. Thank you very much for this very very informative insight into the service that is provided by Ironside's macroeconomics. If we had more time, it would be interesting to discuss in detail your views on the other G7 economies, as well as your views on the global emerging markets, particularly China. The Independent Research Forum is offering a short trial to the Ironside's macroeconomic service and can also provide details of how to subscribe to the full service. More information is available on request from the Independent Research Forum. Thank you for listening to this IRF podcast with Barry Knapp of Ironside's Macroeconomics.